John chapter 3. Again, we've been in this series uh, going through the entire book of John, uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And uh, we came across, obviously, John chapter 3, verse 16. Uh, we have a hand up over here. Good. You guys got it? Uh, and uh, one of the things that we recognize is that as we are in this season of Advent, there's like three major themes that we've been focusing on that we just kind of sense that Advent is really all about and have been kind of historically tied to the story of Jesus. Uh, can you show that slide up there? It just has like the four different uh, ways um, in which uh, four different themes. So each week we'll be looking at a different theme, but all of them will basically be encapsulated in that particular passage, John chapter 3, verse 16. So I, I, I just want to read that passage to you right now. So just listen to it again afresh. My hope would be that, uh, again, this is one of those passages that has become so familiar maybe even in some cases overly familiar, um, but my prayer for you would be that in this season, that whatever degree of familiarity has taken in your life, that you would see it with fresh eyes, freshness, newness, that would reawaken um, a sense of awe and worship and love for Jesus, for what Jesus has accomplished. So let me read this, John chapter 3, verse 16, then we will get to work looking at the subject of love. John three sixteen verse it says, it starts with this, it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting or eternal life, as some of your Bible translations might say. And this is the word of the Lord. And what John wants us to see this morning, that we're going to just pause and reflect and consider, is just this word, love. Um, what this means, uh, one of the, again, one of the things that we've been doing as we've been in this season uh, is just having uh, time to pause to listen to what the friends at the Bible Project have to say. They've had this great uh, video series on this. Today, we're going to watch the one on agape or the word love. So let's go ahead and listen to this, and then we'll just get into some teaching. What you would want them to do to you. And this, actually, is a restatement of something else that Jesus said, that the meaning of life is to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's really beautiful, but what does he mean exactly by the word love? It's an unclear word in English, because you can love your mom and you can love pizza. And if the word love means the same thing in both of those cases, your mom's going to feel real bad. So what did Jesus mean in his language? Well, first of all, this love your neighbor phrase is a quotation from the Hebrew scriptures where the word for love is ahava. However, the language Jesus spoke and taught in from day to day, it was a cousin language of Hebrew, that is Aramaic, in which the word for love is rachma. But then, as Jesus' followers spread his teachings around the world, they translated them into Greek using the word agape. But here's what's fascinating. The earliest followers of Jesus who wrote the books of the New Testament in Greek, they didn't learn the meaning of agape by looking it up in ancient dictionaries. Rather, they looked to the teachings of Jesus and the story of his life to redefine their very concept of love. So one time, Jesus was asked about the most important command in the Jewish scriptures. And he first quoted from the ancient prayer in the Torah called the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. So love for God is the most important thing. But then Jesus quickly followed up by saying another command from the Torah was also the most important, to love your neighbor as yourself. So which is the most important, loving God or loving your neighbor? Jesus' answer is yes. To ask the question means you don't get his point. For Jesus, they are two sides of the same coin. Your love for God will be expressed by your love for people and vice versa, they're inseparable. 
so this makes it clear that for Jesus, agape love is not primarily a feeling for someone else that happens to you, like our phrase, I fell in love. For Jesus, love is action. It's a choice that you make to seek the well-being of people other than yourself. Jesus also went on to teach that genuine love for God and others means seeking people's well-being without expecting anything in return, especially from people who are in difficult situations who can't repay you even if they wanted to. According to Jesus, this kind of generous love reflects the very heartbeat of God. And he took this even further. Jesus said that the ultimate standard of authentic love is how well you treat the person that you can't stand. Or in his words, you shall love your enemy and do good to them, expecting nothing nothing in return. For Jesus, this kind of enemy-embracing love imitates the very character of God himself. Now, we wouldn't be talking about Jesus still today if he had only said things like love your enemy. This is how he actually lived. Jesus was constantly helping and serving the people around him in very practical and tangible ways. And he consistently moved towards poor and hurting people who couldn't benefit him in return. He showed love for the forgotten ones, the people who usually fall through the cracks. And when Jesus eventually marched into Jerusalem, he made himself an enemy of the leaders of his people by accusing them of hypocrisy and corruption. But then instead of attacking his enemies to overthrow them, he allowed them to kill him. Jesus died for the selfishness and corruption of his enemies because he loved them. After Easter morning, Jesus and then his followers claimed that it was the power of God's love for the world that was revealed in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. As the Apostle Paul put it, God demonstrated his own agape for us in this. While we were still sinners, the Messiah died for us. Or in the words of the Apostle John, God's own agape was revealed when he sent his one and only son into the world so that through him we could have life. And for John, then, this leads naturally to the conclusion, beloved ones, if that's how God has loved us, then we ought to show love for one another. So Christian faith involves trusting that at the center of the universe is a being overflowing with love for his world, which means that the purpose of human existence is to receive this love that has come to us in Jesus and then to give it back out to others, creating an ecosystem of others-focused, self-giving love. And that's the New Testament meaning of agape love. So... Uh, we will be looking at really the subject of love today. And uh, again, hopefully you guys have your Bibles open to the book of John chapter 3. Um, if not, why don't you go ahead and open that and uh, we're going to take a look at a handful of things in here. Uh, before we do, uh, man, I want to specifically talk to you. Raise your hand real quick if you're a guy. Raise your hand real quick. Uh, to, this week is the very last men's group of the year, not of the season. We'll be having continuing season three is what we're in right now, but it will be the last Wednesday night men's group of the year. So if you have not been a part of the men's group, Maybe come check out the very last one to kind of set you up in a good rhythm or cadence for jumping into the new year. So um, that being said, John chapter 3, verse 16, the subject of God's love. I want to look at really three specific things that I think this passage exemplifies with regard to the idea or the concept of God's love. And I'll just kind of throw them out to you. We'll look at them one by one because I think this whole verse covers all of them. Number one, we're going to see that God's love is expansive. Number two, we're going to see that God's love is actually self-giving. 
Thirdly, we're going to see that God's love has actually arrived or it's here. So let's jump right in and take a look at the subject of God's love. First and foremost is expansive. Um, one of the things that it's important to note that God himself, clearly what Jesus is describing here in John chapter 3 is part of a larger dialogue with a guy by the name of Nicodemus. If you guys were here two weeks ago, you remember one of our elders, his name is Luke, actually taught in this. It was an excellent teaching. If you have not checked it out, always check out our older teachings online on our website or just go to our podcast. Um, and what he did is he kind of unpacked how, as Jesus has a dialogue with this guy by the name of Nicodemus. But what he's describing is this larger context of the Jewish people that are deeply connected to Yahweh God. And what we see now is that God's love in John chapter 3, verse 16, is so vast, it says that God so loved the world. And I think this is really an important thing to really just kind of identify. God's love is extensive. This is a a direct contrast to thinking of God as nothing more than a tribal deity. Or in other words, that God has some form of priority devoted to uh, a, a particular ethnic group or a hierarchy, or an elite group, or an income bracket, or any other type of community. This God is not a tribal deity. I think it's important to note this, because throughout all history, all religions, all or I should say all communities, all cultures, all groups have had some form of God or some belief in a God, but those gods have typically been tribal. In other words, they've been located around a particular tribal group or community or or a, a particular handshake or a way of kind of being a part of that group or you had an identity that was directly linked to that God. So if you did not fit that uh, direct identity or that ethnicity or that social economic group or that elite status or that kingly group or monarchical realm or whatever it was, then you were not part of the in-group. But Jesus is really clearly making a point that God's love is so vast, it actually extends to the world. Um, Over the past couple weeks, I've been reading through uh, Ezekiel, which is kind of part of my yearly Bible reading program, uh, which is kind of coming to an end as we end the year and start a brand new year. Uh, But uh, I think it was like Isaiah or like Ezekiel 47, 48, something like that, really caught my attention because in it, God is basically making allowances for the people of Israel, saying, hey, look, when a foreigner comes into your land, treat them as if they belong to your community. That really captured my attention because it was like, wow, God actually really cares. Yes, he cares about the Jewish people, especially even all the way in the Old Testament. But God cares beyond the Jewish people into all of the world. Uh, God's aim, God's desire is to really take all of this planet, all that are involved, a part of this created order that have drifted, that have been uh, fallen under the grip of sin and brokenness and death and disease and transgression and rebellion and all of these words and all of these maladies and pathologies, that God's aim is to bring them back into right relationship with himself. How extensive is God's love? How expansive is it? It goes to all the world. So I think it'd be important right now to just even kind of pause a little bit and just kind of ask the question, what is the world? What is the world? If you have been a part of a Christian community for any length of time, you have heard various versions of this. So depending upon your childhood upbringing, maybe you had a youth pastor or a youth group, youth group, and they're like, don't love the world. And you're stuck with this idea of like everything is worldly. Maybe listening to, you know, secular music is worldly or Getting a tattoo is worldly, or smoking a cigarette is worldly, and if you do those things, you're not going to go to heaven. 
this idea of like, what is worldliness? And again, there's like weird ways of interpreting that and thinking about that. But I want to pause real quick and just try to refocus our understanding as to like, what does John mean when he says world? I think it's a worthy question to just kind of explore a little bit. Now, John actually uses this word world a lot. It's literally the Greek word cosmos, K-O-S-M-O-S, cosmos. We get the word order from, or if you like Seinfeld, Cosmo Kramer, Cosmos. Anyways, but the point of the matter is, is back on track, is you have this idea of orderliness. And this is the order that God is referring to. And John writes a lot about this. John speaks about this, not only in his letter, uh, in this, I should say, this gospel account, but also in his letters. He also refers to the word world. He says, love not the world. Or don't love the world. He who is the love of the world in him, does not love the Father. So there is something to be said about loving the world, and yet God loves the world. So what, is, what exactly is happening here? So let's take a little bit of a journey uh, following this particular word, the way that John uses it. And I think we'll be able to develop a little bit of an understanding as to what does John mean by the word world. And by doing this, it'll help reorient our thinking, our understanding as to what we think about the word world to make sure that it's in alignment with how God thinks of it. No. So let's go back to John chapter 1. So if you want, you can turn back there. I'm not going to have any of the scriptures up on the screen, so you're more than welcome to write them down. Just a little bit of a journey. John chapter 1, verse 9 through 11. If you want, you can just skip ahead to John chapter 1, 29, and I'll reference that as well. But take a look at verse 9. Chapter 1, it says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. It's the first usage of the word world. It says, uh, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So, so far, what we know about this idea of cosmos, or this created order, Jesus made the world. However, this world system does not love him. So already we're getting a little bit of a hint at the storyline of what's happening, the plot, the narrative, what's taking place. Well, what's taking place so far is you have a creator or a creative mind, creative, beautiful mind that's created something good. But this good thing that was created has already begun to drift from its, its creative goodness into a place of darkness. So take a look at verse 29. Jesus uh, or John said, John the baptizer said of Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world sin in the world. So whatever it is so far, we know that this world has to its credit or is accredited to itself sinfulness, brokenness, disdain or despair or uh, destruction, death. It has accumulated a bank account filled with sins. But John says Jesus has come to level that credit. To, to level the playing field, to do something about the debt that has gone on far too long to set to right that which has deeply been broken. So that's what we see so far again. John chapter 3, verse 19. So what we were just on, John chapter 3, verse 16, we're going to jump ahead. Verse 19 says this, and this is the judgment that light has come into the world. People love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. So Jesus, the creator, God, who created this world, steps into this world. This world does not love him, does not devote himself itself to him. And as a result of that, has accrued unto itself sinfulness or brokenness. Or the best way to think about sinfulness is the direct consequence of sinfulness is death. Every human being not only dies, but also brokers in death or deals with death or distributes death and is a distributor of death. All of us have had the tentacles of death wrapped around us. All of us. Just pause and think about that. Just right now, even make this more personal. What are the areas in your life right now where death is reigning? Has reigned? Has impacted you? 
has defiled you, has broken you? Where has death been allowed by you to be unleashed upon the souls of another human being? By your actions, by your proclivities, by your wayward desires or your inordinate longings. Where has death been unleashed upon other people through you? Death currently is all around us. But Jesus, as part of this world, Jesus has come in to do something about death, to take it upon himself, to deal with it, to render judgment. That's literally what John is saying here. He's come to render judgment to this, that light has come into this world, but people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Why do people do evil? John tells us really clearly, first and foremost, begins with our inordinate desires. We love darkness. I was talking with someone recently that it was a, the subject of, of porn had come up that really it's not so much a porn issue as it is a discipleship issue. We love as human beings, the more that we can just come to come clean and come to light with this reality I'm going to say right now, the more that we can just spit this out, deal with its after effects, the, the better we're going to be in the long run. The fact is that porn is a matter of I love a human naked body more than I love Jesus. It's as simple as that. It's as simple as that. I'm more deeply devoted to a naked human body than I am to Jesus. And I'll do whatever I can to download images of that, to make sure that I have access to that as much as I can, to kind of create a separate world if I have to, or a separate identity in order to access this type of stuff. But at the end of the day, it's an issue of love. Men and women, this is an equal opportunity moment here, men and women both love darkness more than we love light because these are evil. We do things. We seek out opportunity to continue to do things that are not in alignment with life or with Jesus. In other words, this world that Jesus created is good, has gone uh, astray, has drifted, and as it has drifted, has gone into a place of darkness. And as a result of that, death and defilement has accumulated over it. But Jesus has come into this world to do something about it. Verse uh, 23 of John chapter 8. Let's go ahead and read this one. John 8 verse 23. And then he said, you are of this world, I am not of this world. So what, G- what John uh, is saying about Jesus is that Jesus himself saying to others that are part of this world system, he said, you are of this world, you are acting as if this is like your world, you're living here, and you are in, uh, affected or infected by its actions. But Jesus says, I'm not of this world. Uh but ultimately, Jesus is for this world, meaning he's not only for it as an agent coming to bring hope and healing and wholeness, but he's for this world. What Jesus has come to bring is directly for the need of this world. John chapter 12, again, if you're writing notes, John chapter 12, verse 31 to 33, it says this. I'll read it. The time for judgment has Come, Jesus says, when Satan, the ruler of this world. So this is another look, interesting clue. Who rules this world? Satan. Who's Satan? Again, it's another little rabbit trail we can go down. But uh, if you've been following the biblical narrative so far, you know that there's a dark force or a dark agent that's out there that's represented by other dark agents, right, that are basically uh, out to destroy, distort, disfigure God's good purposes in this world, and they'll stop at nothing to do that. Therefore, they're the ones that have influence and power and authority over this world to continue to vandalize God's good creation. But Jesus is saying right here that the time for Satan's judgment has come near. He's the ruler of this world. And it goes on to say, and he will be cast out. 
verse 20, verse 32, it says, and when I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. And he said this to indicate how he was going to die. So what Jesus is indicating that I'm going to be crucified. This is how I will undo the works of the devil that have soiled and defiled and brought death and unleashed all of its agents upon this world. And then lastly, John chapter 17, verses 13. There's, again, there's a lot more that I can go down, but this is a little bit of a sampling. In fact, if you want on your own time, just find a good concordance. If you don't know what that is, just go check it out and online and Google it and do some research on the word world. It's actually a really fascinating uh, research project. All right, John chapter 17, verses 13 and 15, 13 through 15. Now verse, read verse 18 as well. Just follow along, listen to this. Jesus is now referring to those that have devoted themselves to him. He says this, these things I speak while in the world, that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. So Jesus is actually saying that this is commonly known as the prayer that Jesus prays to the Father. And in this prayer, Jesus says, look, I'm in this world right now. I'm about to judge the world uh, by way of my death. But I'm also praying for those that are in this world. My prayer, Jesus is saying, for those that are still living in this world is that their joy might be maximized. I want you to pause and think about this. What's God's posture towards you? He wants you to have joy, even in this world that just sucks. He loves you. He wants to help us. He's with us. Even in this world that's filled with pain and has the tentacles of death wrapped sometimes around our feet and our lives and our relationships, that God's aim is actually to pray for our joy being fulfilled in this world. He goes on to say, verse 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of this world. As I am not of this world, I do not ask that you take them out of this world, but that you would keep them from the evil one. As you sent me into this world, so I am also sending them into this world. But Jesus' whole point is to say, is that as you are faithful to Jesus, buckle up. You will have people that will hate you. But they're really not hating you, it's hating Jesus, who represents life, who represents enemy love, who represents Freedom, ultimate freedom, true freedom, not a a parody of freedom. He represents freedom in its fullness. Jesus is the life giver. And as you devote yourself to him, Jesus will shape the way that you think. He will shape your morals. He will shape your ethics. He will shape how you think about life, all life, not just unborn life, but life all throughout, whether it be an, uh, an unwanted pregnancy, life that is suffering under the weight of having a child, not knowing what to do with this child, all the way to when a person is old and incapable of taking care of themselves, and they are basically just simply forgotten or shut in. Jesus cares about all life. And if you follow Jesus, your morals, your ethics, your thinking, your lifestyle is ultimately going to be shaped by Jesus. And there's going to be people that are like, hate that. Jesus is prepping us for that. He says, this is the way it's going to work. But my prayer for them is that as they are in this world, that they would be prepared and strengthened and find joy in me in this world. So this helps us understand a little bit about the expansiveness of God's Love, that God's love is so broad, so vast, that it includes all people. That this world, even though this world in its system, this operating system, has gone horribly off kilter. It's become corrupted. It's like it has a virus somehow on its programming level. Its genetic code has somehow gone vastly astray. But Jesus loves this world. The Christian religion, at its very core, is 
earthly, material. If you have come to think about Christianity as being nothing more than a get-out-of-life card so that when you die, you go to some ethereal place, I'm sorry, that is not the Christian gospel of the New Testament. That is more of a platonic, shaped by Greek philosophers than it is the New Testament God. That God loves this world. He's deeply committed to this world and its healing, ultimately. And he invites us to be part of this. So this is what we see first and foremost in terms of God's love being expansive. I want to move on to the very next one, and we'll wrap it up with some final thoughts. Next, we see that God's love is ultimately self-giving. What do I mean by this? Is that God himself steps in and gives himself. This is not just God saying uh, platitudes, hey, I love you. This is not just a pure emotion. Again, this is why it's important, I think, to stop a little bit and think a little uh, in terms of what does love mean. That's why I showed that video because it does such a great job defining, articulating a little bit what the idea of love is because love is not just merely a sentiment. Love is actually a call of duty, a call of action. It involves your life. It involves you stepping into something. In fact, I would even go so far as to say is that if we claim to love God and yet hate our brothers, and again, this is not me actually saying this, this is John who in the book of First John says, if you claim to love God yet you hate other people, then you really don't know and understand and comprehend the love that God is all about. It doesn't mean that you're not a Christian. It doesn't mean that you're not trying. It just means that you're, there's an incomprehensiveness that you have as well as an as far as an application of what the love of God looks like in your life. In other words, you still got work to do. We all still got work to do. But love involves this hard work of stepping into another person's life. We cannot love at a distance. I think of a father who would say, I love you, but he's never home. He's always just giving gifts to his children. But never. But really what those kids need is your physical presence being there. But I got a job. Figure out a way to find a way to get in to be present with your kids' lives. I mean, it's literally the theme of a countless, maybe hundreds of movies over the past hundred years about a father who's been absent. And then the kid gets angry and he's got a vendetta or a chip on his shoulder and he's going to go out and do something to prove his value and worth because his dad never did. And therefore, he kind of creates a whole new cycle of brokenness and vengeance and just vitriolic reactions. But the point of the matter is that there's something about just being present. present. And we see that God's love is ultimately self-giving. Jesus steps into this world. There's three different ways in which I see this kind of play out. John chapter 3, verse 17, we see that God's love ultimately rescues. Again, these aren't written up there. Just go ahead and listen to this. Read John chapter 3, verse 17. God did not send his son into this world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Just pause and think about that. How do you think about Jesus? I think for a season of Western Christianity, at least for them. I was just talking to a guy about this a couple days ago. He said, man, I feel like I, the church, I came from a church that was like really stuffy. And I think there was a, there was a season where Christianity had this tendency of being uh, a, a way of trying to protect itself from the culture and went all the way to this other extreme of becoming so pious. And it creates a context where because Christians can be very filled with condemnation, that it's easy to think that maybe God's filled with condemnation. But what Jesus is saying here very clearly is that God did not come to condemn the world. He actually came to save the world. This is what Jesus has come ultimately to do, is to save the world so that those who would believe in him would ultimately find hope and life and healing. So 
The second thing I see is that God's love also adopts. Take a look at Romans chapter 8, verse 15. You can either turn there or write this down. John chapter 8, verse 15 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, whereby we cry of a father. That we see that God gives to us. It's self-giving. God gives us this gift of adoption. If you live your life today, and you're like, I love Jesus. God's cool. I'm not involved in the church. I have no accountability in my life. I don't give my resources, my time, my treasure, my talents anywhere because I'm self-made. Then I'm honestly, I really just honestly want to speak to you. Like some, there is a, there is a, there's a distortion in your discipleship somewhere. You belong somewhere. That's what adoption says. You have a father. And that means that you have a family and that family needs you and you need that family. Like, you cannot get around that. This is our culture. Our culture is so hyper-independent. And I'm telling you, it is ultimately the source of so much destructiveness in our discipleship. That hyper-independence is destroying you. Please hear that. You need the body of Christ. And one of the greatest ways in which you will begin to develop as a disciple of Jesus is when you get past the hyper-independence. And step into the place. And you can say, well, the church isn't all that I want it to be. Well, step into it. See about how God might use you to be a part of that. Or I don't have time. Again, it's about how do we create space in our lives to truly follow Jesus. Otherwise, I mean, to be really honest with you, all that we're left with is nothing more than just a cultural trace of Christianity. It's just cultural Christianity. It's not real, genuine discipleship, following Jesus. And so... What we see with regard to God's love is not only self-giving, it adopts us into a family. You have a place of belonging. So much of our culture is filled with a sense of lostness. We have a desire for community. We want to be connected. And yet, this is the very heart of the gospel itself, is that God says, you belong. You belong because I have brought you into a family. That's why you belong. And then lastly, we see that God's love also glorifies glorifies this is good. it's really awesome john first john chapter 3 verses 1 through 12 says beloved you, we are god's children playing on a theme of adoption he says and yet we yet uh what we will be has not yet appeared but we know that when he appears we shall be like him because we will see him as he is and this is john's way again further along saying but this is how great the gift of God's self-giving love is. He brings you into this relationship of adoption, and then he showers you with affection and kindness and goodness and love and care and concern. You have a place to belong. I talk to people all the time. They're like, man, I don't know if I really fit in anywhere. And again, some of that may be genuine. You might have certain characteristic traits or certain ways of thinking about things. But at the end of the day, in the body of Christ, you always have a place to belong. Some people might not be warm and welcoming and all chipper and happy. Again, sometimes it's people's personalities. But regardless of how people's personalities are, you have a place because God says you have a place. And not only that, we don't know exactly what we will look like one day or what our experience will be one day. Because you know what? You and I are nothing more than one acorn looking at another acorn and trying to figure out what the heck is an oak tree? 
But seriously, we're like, what does it even look like? I can't even begin to imagine what a branch looks like, this massive, like, bow, bow spent standing, uh, standing over, or this, this massive, uh, shadow that's been cast because of the sun upon this massive tree. Like, we're just acorns. We're just seeds that have not yet even begun to germinate. One day, we will. One day, we will see that dawning, that morning. One day, we will be radically transformed. That's the way in which all New Testament writers are saying we will ultimately step into all that God calls us to become. Right now, we're just, again, we're just, we're seeds looking at a bunch of other seeds. We're like, man, a lot of ugliness here. Have you ever looked at a seed? I'm seriously, have you looked? There's nothing beautiful about a seed. They're really ugly. They're nasty. They're dirty. But we're seeds. One day, we shall be fully made in the image of Jesus, and there will be showers of God's glory on all of that. Lastly, we see that God's love is here. So number one, we see that God's love is expansive. Number two, we see that God's love is self-giving. And thirdly, we see that God's love ultimately is here. It has arrived. This is what Christmas is all about. This is why we celebrate Advent. This is why we stop every single year, four weeks before Christmas, to re-engage with the story of Advent, what it tells us. Again, if you get tired of it, I have no apologies because, like, this is a cadence. It's a way. It's so easy for us to forget. We forget the story. We forget the narrative. Why? Because we spend six days a week constantly feeding off of alternate narratives in this world. This world system is broken. It's under the influence of the devil. Six days a week, constantly on streams of social media. An hour a week, once a week, is barely going to do anything to push that back unless we engage with the story on a regular basis. It's one of the reasons why, like I said, we do this on a yearly basis, to re-engage with the story, to remind ourselves that God so loved the world that he gave his son. He's here. Jesus came. God's work has begun. The morning has begun to dawn. Yes, darkness is still here, but it's, it's, it's not as dark as it could be. That darkness is going away. It takes time for the darkness to fully be removed and to be replaced with the light. But that day has dawned. And we know this because of Jesus' first coming. In other words, there's a lot of hope. And lastly, I want to finish with this question. Are you ready to be loved by God? Not just talk about God's love. Not just act as if you've got some sort of script, religious script down, which is like, God loves me. Wonderful. Do you really, and have you really truly allowed that love of God to penetrate who you are? One of the quickest ways to just really identify if that's true, sometimes it can get messy. And I mean that in a good way. To the degree that you recognize that no matter who you are, how broken you are, how messed up you are, how defiled you are, how much you've sinned against God, how much you have, through your actions, sinned against other people, and you've unleashed death and brokenness and defilement upon the lives of other people through your lives, that even in the midst of all of that, you are loved. That's profound. We struggle with this idea of wanting to be loved, but also wanting to be known. But we also know that if, if I'm fully known, I might not be fully loved. Because if people know my, my stuff, they know my garbage, they know my baggage, they might not love me. So what, usually what we do, we settle for superficial love, which is really not being known. I'm not going to tell you 
my past. I'm not going to tell you stuff I've done. I'm not going to tell you the stuff that I'm thinking about. Because if I do, it'll be too embarrassing for me. And it'll be too shocking for you. And you will drop me. But the gospel says you are both loved and fully known simultaneously. To the degree you grasp that, you, you honestly cannot help but be rocked to your core. And this is what we're invited into in this season, to recognize that this is the quality of love that's been shed abroad through Jesus into the hearts of people that have fully received him. So my invitation to you right now is to maybe even do business with Jesus. As we close, I'm going to invite you all to stand. And I'm going to ask you to close your eyes just in a final practice. So I want you to close your eyes. If you want to lift up your hands, it's just an act of saying, I'm receiving you, Jesus, and all that you have. You're more than welcome to do that. If not, it's no big deal. But just right now in this moment, I want to invite you to just maybe do, do business with God. Ask God to just show himself to you. Just say, God, show me this love that you have for me. In spite of who I am, in spite of what I've done, in spite of what I'm ashamed of, in spite of the regrets that I carry, the guilt I feel, I lay my life down before you in humbleness. Show me your love. Transform my heart. Make me new. Help me to let down my guards to be vulnerable before you. And I just want to pray over you as you do that. Pray that before God. God, right now, we just ask for your spirit's power to move over us. God, the way that you had moved over the initial creation and you brought ordered ground and soil upon the planet so that it was habitable for life. The way that you, Holy Spirit, moved over Jesus, over the waters of his baptism. The way that you, Holy Spirit, moved over the church while they were in the upper room just filled, filled with fear. And transformed them from cowards to fully committed disciples. You transformed them from people that were holding tightly and tenaciously to their goods and their livelihoods to become people that gladly devoted themselves to you and gladly gave all that they had so that everybody was able to be taken care of. Regardless of ethnicity, regardless of background, regardless of whatever type of social economic status they found themselves in, regardless of elite status, regardless of all of this, they were transformed by your love. And God, that's, that's what we want here at Calvary Slow. That's what we want here. That's what we need here on the Central Coast is a, is a community of people that are not anything other than radically aware of their loved status. That transforms us to become people that truly love one another and are devoted to one another and devoted to the mission that you've called us to here on the Central Coast. So God, empower us now as we scatter, as we go back into this world, and as we do business with you. We pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. We all said, amen.